Welcome to the Power of podcast series. In our collection, we dive into critical, thought-provoking and contemporary content to stimulate debate and dialogue, all with the aim of driving gender equality in global health. I'm Joanna Riha, a research fellow within the Gender and Health Hub at the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health, based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. In our last mini-series, we focused on the power of evidence and the disconnect between gender-transformative language and action in global health. In this second mini-series, we are diving into conversations exploring the power of feminist civil society in driving gender equality in health programs and in health systems. As we all know, feminist civil society organizations have played and are very much playing a fundamental and a varied role in advancing gender equality in global health. Despite this, there still seems to be a lack of understanding and acknowledgement of what meaningful engagement and collaboration looks like between public health actors and feminist civil society organizations. There are examples of what successful partnerships look like, and there are transferable lessons that can be taken away from these experiences. For example, in the case of violence against women and girls. In fact, our guest today, Jessica Horn, has authored a think piece on exactly this topic. Jessica is a feminist activist, strategist, and consultant. With a passion for body politics, futures, and encouraging activist innovation, she brings more than two decades of philanthropic, multilateral, and civil society experience across Africa, as well as globally. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. It's great to be in dialogue with you. Jessica, civil society activism has really catalyzed and been fundamental in terms of progress in a number of global health issues, very much beyond functioning as just an accountability mechanism for national governments or global health actors. And you recently authored a fabulous think piece on this topic using the case of violence against women and girls as a case study, really highlighting the diversity and complexity of roles that civil society organizations as well as social movements have played in turning the course of a global public health crisis and promoting gender equality. Could you tell us a little bit about your think piece and some of the key arguments you make? I was really excited to write this and to co-think with people also in the process. And I actually think that this field of violence against women and girls is a fascinating one to study. You know, violence against women and girls was really an issue that was named and framed by social movements. It has been feminist activism in every single country in this world that's brought this question to the table and really helped to reframe social understandings of violence, to actually name them as violence and as violation and as things that are not acceptable, acts that are not acceptable, but to also help conceptualize the broader roots of violence in systems of power, right? And in what in public health terms you call structural drivers. So to really help understand how violence is rooted in these highly problematic gender norms that are propagated by the system of patriarchal power and its intersections with all different kinds of power, including ableist power, including, you know, class and race, sexual orientation, and all of the different axes that we look at when we're looking at structural drivers of, of inequality. So in the think piece, what I'm looking at is sort of the, the foundational roots of this field of violence against women and girls, 
and how critical it has been to have this multidisciplinary engagement that's been deeply and very intentionally grounded in feminist principles and ethics. So one of the things I do is to really look at how integral feminist activism has been to even establishing the field in the first place, to naming the terms, to setting the agendas, to, as you're saying, creating government accountability in the form of having policy, of creating legally binding agreements, and in pushing for health systems, for having policies that are, you know, both multi-sexual policies and policies for the health sector that actually really do attend to the question of violence against women and girls, both in response, but also, as we're seeing now, in growing ways, actually in engaging in prevention. And one of the key aspects of this feminist roots has been the fact that the work is actually grounded now in two really important things. So one is bringing the ecological framework of understanding, you know, health into questions of violence against women. So when we speak about it, we're not only talking about individual acts, but understanding this broader ecosystem within which violence against women and girls occurs and is perpetuated. And through that, then the ability to understand and think about how we work on some of the structural drivers of violence against women and girls. And again, not just the individual acts of violence or in assuming that, again, individuals are acting sort of autonomously outside of these systems of problematic unequal power that actually perpetuate violent norms and violent behaviors and also perpetuate the fact that we almost never have justice. But also in really grounding this field in feminist ethics, and this has been really critical, in particular the central idea that at the end of the day, we have to prioritize women's safety and that any intervention we design has to really think about that at its core, right? In really having the self-critique to also constantly think about how our interventions are working in the context of women's lives and in the complex matrices of women's lives, and to think about what some of the impacts or effects of this can be in other domains of women's lives as well. Jessica, could you tell us a little bit more about how you've seen these ideas applied in recent initiatives? The UK government put a considerable amount of money into this initiative called What Works, which is very exciting for this field, which was really, you know, putting money into the development of a greater evidence base around prevention of violence against women and to sort of piloting or deepening models of intervention. And the findings after the first stage of this multi-year initiative are interesting and actually reaffirm a lot of what feminists have been arguing about the ways that we prevent violence against women, in particular in the ethical domain, in terms of really needing to ground the work in this analysis of the structural drivers and in, in the analysis of how gender norms are playing out to perpetuate violence, but also really in thinking about a robust theory of change that really thinks about all of these factors, but also even in the intentionality and noting that actually where you have interventions where the people involved, the staff and volunteers involved, have a higher level of contact, a higher level of time spent in community, a higher level of investment in what's happening, it also tends to lead to greater impact in terms of reducing prevalence in those, in those environments. So again, the ethics or grounding in the ethics is really critical. Another piece of this is really thinking about or rethinking the timescales when we think about change. So, you know, feminist activism comes out of this desire, a kind of popular, you know, ground-based desire for women to be free, you know, for women to be free. 
It's a long-term vision that is marked by a real concern for persistence, right, in contributing to these transitions and transformations over time. It's interesting to then match that with a world of very project-based, relatively short-term thinking when it comes to sort of programming, in particular donor-led programming around interventions. And so I think what, you know, some of the feminist work is contributing is just thinking about even though there have been tremendous results in in some of these evidence-based interventions, you know, above 50% reduction in prevalence in communities, which is again astounding within project timeframes of up to five years. But at the same time, we know that that's not elimination. And that actually, we also know that, you know, one of the feminist wisdoms is the fact that as you change, the system of power will also resist. And backlash is a very common experience that feminist activism faces. And so it's really critical that as we invest in more project-based work, that we also think about actually a longer-term investment in mapping how this transformation really happens and resourcing this transformation to happen over time so that we really cement it in and build it in and that we really help reorganize, again, kind of community power relations and ways of thinking and being together in ways that would really sustain, sustain an end to violence against women. What about working with other feminist actors? How has this evolved over time? And maybe you could also tell us a little bit about research partnerships and some of the tensions that were experienced there as well. You know, the work began, as I said, very much in, in activist ways, some of which was in formal activism, but also in sort of organized feminist civil society that we're, you know, intervening in debates around governmental policy, you know, sort of standard setting in the international arena, developing policies, both in the human rights, but also in the health fields and working with, you know, brilliant people, brilliant allies in, in spaces like the World Health Organization to really build up the prevalence data, which is really critical, obviously, to be able to design any intervention from a public health perspective at scale, but also to establish, you know, ethical guidelines around how we do research that, again, are really focused on this question of really ensuring do no harm to women, you know, ensuring women's safety, ensuring that the research is not just about extracting information, but also contributing to women's ability to actually, you know, live healthy lives. But one of the interesting things that's happening now, of course, is that because this is becoming a field that is now involving many different actors, we're also getting a bit of attention when it comes to the power relations around knowledge production. I think this is something that we really do need to pay attention to. Because feminist movements really help to contribute the conceptualization or understanding of violence in ways that are very linked to the ways that women experience them in our daily lives and talk about and communicate about them. A lot of the early prevention interventions were really scripted in that way, in thinking about how do we discuss interpersonal power, how we relate to each other, how do we explore the emotional impact of violence and what it means to us and why it's so devastating in our lives and how that actually becomes a fuel or an engine to want to be involved in activism or be involved in, you know, engaging in this norm change work in communities to rethinking how we relate because we can see the damage that it creates. And in some respects, this is a sort of almost like a, yeah, a kind of feminist activist knowledge language, which of course can sometimes sit a bit uneasily in the public health universe of thinking about, you know, drivers and, you know, risk and, and what have you. But I think that there's actually been a good, a good dialogue there. And I think that there's a lot of kind of co-learning and thinking about how, you know, how we build this field 
with the feminist insight around how communities actually talk to each other and how we can think about what's going on and really map what's going on. But inevitably, in particular, when money enters, there is always a tension around who's visible, who's heard, and who's, whose knowledge is acknowledged. And I think this is one crucial thing that we really have to think about. In this moment, we speak a lot about the, you know, decolonizing public health, decolonizing research. And I think that that has multiple dimensions. One of them, of course, is to think about the north-south power dynamics and who, you know, who's getting the money to lead on this research, who's choosing who research partners are, who are lead authors, who's, you know, presenting at the conference, right? Whose voice is being heard. But there is also not just a north-south dynamic, but also a dynamic about activist practitioners versus researchers. And this idea that is, you know, embedded in kind of the broader matrix of knowledge production, that in some respects what people who work in and with community have is sort of raw knowledge, but not necessarily analysis, right? Not necessarily insight. And researchers come in to offer that. In practice, a lot of people who've been doing this work feel that as a tension. And some have been able to negotiate that they're more equal partners in terms of how the, the research agenda is designed, how knowledge is presented as co-authors, and also in terms of, you know, really, you know, being at the conferences in the spaces where the knowledge is being discussed and having equal ownership of the knowledge that's produced. But I think that this is something that, you know, it's, it's, it's sensitive. It can be sensitive but it's critical to really think about and I think really develop greater self-reflexivity around as we really question the hierarchies of knowledge production and what that means. Overall, I'm saying this because I think it's really important to consider that feminist activism built this field, right? If there hadn't been feminist activism, there probably wouldn't be the expansion of thinking and interest and, you know, governments feeling that they have to act and international agencies really feeling that they need to do something. If it hadn't been for this global mobilization that came from community, but also intersecting with feminists working in different institutions to really, you know, gather energy and pull this together. And so I think it's really critical that we remain connected to that as the field grows and as more actors become involved, including actors who hitherto haven't actually been very involved in the, in the political questions, in the political mobilizing, in the community organizing, but rather bring a more technical angle into this question. Linked to that point, for me, what it really boiled down to was the fact that feminist civil society organizations and actors, despite playing this fundamental role, are actually still considered, if you like, optional, right? Or, or not, not essential in terms of who should be at, at tables, who should be involved from a public health point of view. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you think can be done to change this notion, or at least what are some of the questions we should be asking ourselves in terms of health practitioners, health actors in the field to remain grounded? This is a really important question. And I think that we need to also take heed from the work around HIV and AIDS, where, for example, uh, the whole question of antiretrovirals and the provision of generic antiretrovirals, if it wasn't for the mobilization of the treatment action campaign in South Africa, which really was everyday people. I mean, the treatment action campaign at that time was a majority women from townships, right, who were organizing around this whole question of really actually having the ability to, to access the medicines that they needed to sustain the lives of themselves and their children. 
we can't repeat again or not learn the lesson of how valuable it is to engage with people who are mobilized because these questions of health are not just technical for them. They're not just theoretical for them. They're not just research questions. They are literally about how they sustain their lives and the well-being of their communities. So that's one thing. I think it's just grounding in to keep regrounding health conversations in the fact that for many people, these questions are questions about our lives. That secondly, to acknowledge the expertise. You know, so I spoke about this whole question of power knowledge, and I think that this is one of the issues. So we need to move away from a framing that really has been the construction of international development, unfortunately, of this whole idea that communities are somehow raw material, that they are anecdotal, that the knowledge that they have is naive, you know, and not systematic, and that they don't have insight again and ideas and innovation to offer in terms of thinking about how to solve problems. So I think that that's something that we really need to work on deconstructing, and it's quite deeply wired into the whole way that we think about international development in particular. And a lot of global health conversations, when it relates to, you know, Africa, Asia, Latin America, Middle East, etc., of course, happen through the prism of international development. And so we have that issue. And thirdly, is to just see and practice what it offers. I mean, again, this field was built through experimentation. And it was public health researchers who were really, really interested and attentive to, you know, the value of bridging with feminist civil society organizing to work out how to crack this question of prevention. And so I think it's important to learn from that pioneering generation and to really pay attention to not just what they did, but how they went about it. And we can see the results because what we actually have is this field of tremendous innovation that I think is also going to be helpful in thinking about other questions, you know, other health questions that are health questions that are looking at ways to prevent health concerns that ultimately have their roots in this kind of structural inequality. Linked to this cautionary note, what do you think are some of the key lessons learned from feminist organizing with respect to the field of violence against women and girls that can be applied to other areas in health? So I think the first thing is to just, again, acknowledge that any health question is actually about society and power and economy and culture requires this ecosystemic approach, you know, and really being able to engage with complexity and also developing models that are broad, but that also you can then nuance with local understanding to really think about complexity and to understand how structural drivers actually relate to individual experiences and risk factors and how we can, again, you know, intervene to, to transform that. The second is, you know, in the transformation, somewhat of an activist energy. I mean, there is, you know, some of the roots of public health are actually activists. And I think that that's really continued in the health rights movement, you know, where there really are public health practitioners who are thinking in very attentive ways about how we can think about advancing health as a question of human rights. Because we know that ill health traces the lines of inequality in the world. We know that. And so in a way to kind of embrace that and think about how this work of public health can contribute actually to the broader question of human freedoms, you know, I think is also something that we can learn from this. And I think, again, public health brings this ability to work at scale, 
to think about community scale, to think about national scale, to think about, you know, linking policy and practice to linking service and prevention work, etc., I think is is something that really public health offers. And it, it almost lends itself to this kind of work. So I think that that's also really important. The last thing I think is to just really think about the politics of resources, because I think that this is also something that can be make or break in partnerships. But to really think about as we build multidisciplinary practice around health questions, to also think about not just equality in terms of voice and who's speaking and, you know, who's being acknowledged in terms of knowledge, but also in terms of how the resources are distributed. One of the things that we're seeing now is, for example, in the work around evidence-based prevention, a lot of, of the activist practitioners are concerned that the way that the work is resourced doesn't give them time for inception, you know, doesn't necessarily give them adequate time for reflection, you know, after interventions have been done, because the idea is that they're just there to implement. But of course, they're not. All of this work, and even in intervention work, is about thinking. It's about constant adjustment and making sure that the, the intervention design works in community, you know, and adjusting it as needed. Adjusting it because communities are not static. Things happen in community. There are political moments and environmental issues and you know, economic crises and different things that happen in community that mean that sometimes we have to adjust intervention. So again, to adequately resource the thinking time for everybody and not just the researchers who, technically speaking, are the ones that we think are tasked with the practice of thinking in these interventions. And then largely just this, this, which is a bit linked to the point about activism, but I think to just acknowledge that our work is about ethics, you know, that there is an ethical question that has and should always frame our interventions in the health domain, because we're talking about people's lives. And every time we deal with the question of people's lives, we have to be grounded in shared ethics around how we go about that. In the end, I think it's about accountability to women and girls. And to really always keep in your mind this question of whether what you're doing is contributing to the full rights and freedoms of women and girls. And to ensure that that remains a kind of touchstone in terms of how we develop anything that we do. Two guests are here to tell us what they thought of Jessica's think piece. Avni Amin works at the World Health Organization's Department of Sexual and Reproductive Health and Research on violence against women. Her primary focus is to support countries, and in particular, ministries of health, in the translation and uptake of WHO's normative guidelines and tools to strengthen health systems' response to violence against women. We typically think of feminist civil society as playing an important role in holding governments, duty bearers, and others accountable to a particular issue. And I think what Jessica's piece really highlighted is that it's more than just accountability. It's first of all, really advancing the thinking around how to thoughtfully program with women and keeping women at the center of the efforts. The second, for me, that resonated is the creativity that came about, the innovations that came about as a result of this really wonderful collaboration between 
feminist activists, feminist researchers, feminist epidemiologists, feminist statisticians, feminist policymakers. I mean, we're all feminists at heart, but we all bring complementary skill set to the table and this coming together of this different skill sets with a single goal in mind, I think was really good for building a very solid evidence base for innovations, for placing the issue on the health agenda. I think what's interesting is that we tend to think in very siloed terms. But here what we saw was the complementarity that, you know, when researchers come together with activists. And then the issue that I think also resonated is that it isn't just about the science or the activism. It's how you advance it with underpinned by very solid ethical values-driven principles. So respect for each other's contributions, the idea that whatever you do has to be driven by values of safety, respect for women's autonomy, that the ethics of, of making sure that women are at the center of everything that you do on violence prevention, I think was as important as knowing how widespread the problem was and what we can do to prevent violence against women. One of the things that I think we've taken away in prevention programming in particular is that it isn't just implementing a package of prevention. You know, it isn't just implementing a innovative idea, but it's how you implement it is as important in the success factors as what you implement. Our second guest, Laurie Michelle, is the co-founder and co-director of Raising Voices, a feminist not-for-profit organization based in Kampala, Uganda, working to prevent violence against women and children. What really resonated the most with me is just the story that it tells. It is a story that really of how just slowly over time and as a result of such a diverse range of people and such intense commitment and really a shared vision that the field of violence prevention kind of came to be. I don't think we often look back to consider this or we don't maybe from where we're sitting, know the other aspects beyond our like small little niche. Yet it's really an accomplishment to move an issue from the margins all the way to the center. And I think that that evidence base has been so critical in moving the policy level changes and more interest in funding and programming at a global level. So um, as an activist and a program person, I always love to see more of that. But also linked to that, I think, you know, really to recognize and Jessica did this in the article, but I think it's really important to call out that the majority of evidence-based programming is actually coming from the global South. And this really demonstrates the strength in the innovation of activism. And yet, you know, still programmers and activists are considered in some spaces less expert or less technical in our skill set, perhaps less valued than those maybe in research or more generally in the global 
Global North. And those are, there's still assumptions, wrong assumptions, I would say, about where expertise lies and where it emerges from. And so I think the story of how to prevent violence against women is a great example of leadership from the activist community in the Global South. So I would have loved to see a little bit more of that and maybe even a little bit of the discussion about some of the challenges that we face as a field. What does it mean, for example, that there's so many new actors, that many of those actors don't have a feminist analysis of violence against women? What does it mean that programs are being pushed to go to scale? What does it mean to go to scale with these very personal approaches of social change? And what does it mean and how to resist the backlash? The backlash is not just happening at community level, but all the way up to decision makers um, and people who are making key decisions that are going to affect programs and the lives of women. So those are all really, I think, big challenges that emerge. And I think naming them and continuing to talk about and discuss them and put them out there help inform and influence where we go as a field collectively. And finally, can I ask, what are some of the key lessons from feminist civil society engagement on the issue of violence against women and the role that they've played there, what do you think are some of the transferable lessons to other health areas? It's a good question. And I think that more of the cross-learning is so important. One is, you know, that knowledge and innovation does come from the global south. So pay attention and watch and listen and learn. I think the other is that activism matters. Civil society really pushed, organized, harnessed kind of collective power to get us where we are today to put violence on the global agenda. So we can't be thinking about what we some might call sort of development or international aid, we really need to push beyond that and really start supporting civil society and social justice movements. And I also think a really important thing that other folks within other health areas can really think about is the ecological approach that's discussed in the article. The ecological model really represents the complexity of life. And rarely with other health or social justice issues, is there a simple cause and effect? And I think we often want that because it's easier to program around. It's easier to think about policy around. But really, the social issues, those are very complex. And if we understand and unpack those challenges and problems within an ecological model, I think it really helps us understand the different multiple and intersecting realities of people's lives, and in this case, women's lives, from both the macro level all the way to the micro. And that means we're getting more true to the lived experience of what it means to be human, being a woman, and seeing people more fully. So not as just a problem that needs a technical quick fix, but really how we can embrace the complexity rather than simplifying things down to such common denominators that then they become, the responses become so inadequate. So really challenging us to develop more creative and complex programmatic responses, and even using that I think one of the things to underscore is that the history of the violence against women field is different than, say, the history of the AIDS movement. Violence against women was placed on the women's health agenda or the health public health agenda by feminists, whereas the AIDS activism emerged as a response to how the global health, the public health, the medical biomedical community was dealing with the AIDS epidemic in ways that were not 
recognizing the fundamental social justice issues. So in that way, there are really stark differences and each health issue has its own history of how it evolved and how it chose to work with civil society or didn't. I do want to recognize that, you know, it's not just about transferable lessons, but also recognizing that the history of evolution is different. But I think one of the things, obviously, that one can transfer in the learnings from violence against women to other issues is really thinking about not just feminist activism as activism, but as contributing to innovations in programming, as contributing to transforming the way science is done to really putting a moral underpinning of social justice to science. And it's not that science doesn't think about it, but in very explicit ways in violence against women, power became a very central concept and a construct to query, to measure, to challenge, to address, to research. One of the first trials that came out showing reductions in intimate partner violence had about nine measures of of power or empowerment. And this was the image trial in South Africa. And I thought that that was very fascinating because you take this concept that people just talk about and you put the science to it. What What is the science behind unpacking power, measuring it, seeing how we can change power dynamics and to do it in a in a rigorous way. So for me, that is a very important construct that I think needs to be transferred to other health issues because at the end of the day, even if you're talking about cardiovascular diseases, even if you're talking about COVID, and, and COVID is a classic <laughs> case in point that all of the beautiful science that went into doing vaccines did not fundamentally change the nature of power dynamics that drives the global health system. And that, for me, has been a lesson. In in many ways, the biggest failure of COVID has been the stark sort of exacerbation of inequalities and power dynamics, unequal power dynamics, no matter what beautiful science led to vaccines in, in such a record time. The fact that you have such stark inequities in access is a reflection of how we failed as science and scientists to address this fundamental issue of power dynamics. And I think that is something we can learn from the violence against women field in how we do science better in the future. I hope you've enjoyed these conversations as much as we have. If you haven't already, please visit the Gender and Health Hub website where you can find Jessica's think piece titled Learning From and With Feminist Activists, Lessons from the Field of Preventing Violence Against Women and Girls. In the next episode, we explore the role and partnership with feminist civil society organizations in ensuring equitable access to COVID-19 vaccinations. So visit our website at www.genderhealthhub.org or you can visit the UNUIIGH website, which is www.iigh.unu.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. Our UNUIIGH handle is at UNU underscore IIGH, or the Gender and Health Hub Twitter handle, which is at Gender Health Hub. And also, don't forget to send us your feedback and suggestions via email. 
Our email address is iigh-info at unu.edu. Thanks again for listening and until next time. This is a podcast recording by the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health. The views expressed are those of the speakers only.